Well, true spiritual worship is perhaps one of the greatest needs in our individual lives, as, is, as well as you will find within the church of Jesus Christ. So, worship, what is it? We need to know what that is. The basic idea of worship is to ascribe worth. To ascribe worth. So we have to be careful how we do that. This is, this is really important. Now, by the way, uh, with, with worship, you need to be aware that uh, even good things can become ultimate things. And when the ultimate thing becomes something that is, if it's not God, it's called idolatry. It's false worship. So be, be aware of ascribing ultimate worth to something that is not God. That is your fallen human nature loves to do that. So when you, it, uh, what that means to ascribe worth, it means you're using all that we are and all that we have to praise God for all that He is and does. His character is, needs to be ascribed its worth. And what he does is also worthy of worship. Now, heaven is a place of worship. And God's people, of course, will worship God throughout all of eternity. And so a study here in Revelation chapter 4 is, is going to help us better understand how to worship God and give Him the glory that He, discur- he, de- he, he deserves. He needs to uh, have worth ascribed to him as he really is and so this chapter is really helpful and it's going to permit us to hear and to come right into the throne room if you will and and to hear what the the worshiping creatures in heaven are saying and doing to the one who is at the throne so let's read together the words of the living god from revelation chapter 4 And after this, I, that's the Apostle John, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, and with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was 
and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We'll just look at chapter 4 for today. So the Word of God is proposing something to you today. God wants you to do something with this text. God wants you to worship Him as Creator. God is worthy of worship, and the thing that stands out in this particular chapter is He's worthy of worship because He is the great Creator. Did you notice verse 11? Why is God worthy of your worship? Right? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And not only is He the Creator, He's the great sustainer of this entire universe. Because notice, it is by His will they existed and were created. There's a key word in this text. It is the word throne. In fact, it's a key word through the entire book of Revelation. And so using that key word throne as kind of the the center or focal point of the text, we want to bombard this text with several questions. Question number one, what is the throne? What is the throne? Because as you saw in verse 1, John in his spirit was taken to heaven by God to see some amazing visions and the poor dude had to try to describe them in in language that didn't just couldn't fully do it. it it couldn't do it it was indescribable but he tries with the enabling of the holy spirit so what is this throne well according to verse 2 notice um keyword here is throne in fact it's used 14 times <laughs> it's a keyword through the entire book used 46 times through the book of Revelation. So, obviously a key word. God wants you to know something about this throne. Now, what is he talking about? What is God's throne? Well, please do not think of some pathetic, puny little piece of furniture. Because that is not what God is talking about here. This is not a puny little piece of furniture. <laughs> right? So, so just remove all ideas of furniture out of your mind, because that is not what God is telling you here. God's throne is actually a symbol of something bigger and far better and something that's truly awesome. It it is a symbol of His sovereign rule and authority. God doesn't need a piece of furniture to sit on. He rules supremely over all of His creation. And that is great news, friends. See, because it, it doesn't matter what happens here on earth. It doesn't really happen, doesn't really matter what happens in our lives because God hasn't lost control. He is on His throne, ruling and reigning because He has all authority in heaven and in earth. And so this is a, this is wonderful. He has complete control. Even when your life fe- feels like it's spinning out of control, He's still in control. 
even when this world seems like it's on a on a serious nosedive to destruction, which it is, God is still in control. Why do I say that? Because look what God says in verse 2. God says that his throne stood in heaven. It's not in Jerusalem. <laughs> it will be one day. There will be a throne in Jerusalem, in the temple, a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. It's coming, but it's not there yet. Right? So this is good news. Notice, it stood in heaven. In other words, uh, God's sovereign rule is something that is fixed. God's sovereign rule and authority is something that's permanent, is unshakable. Nothing can remove it and, and destroy it. And so this throne is something that's untouchable because notice where it stood. It stands in heaven. It stands in heaven. So my friend, you and I should be encouraged by this, just like the original readers the Apostle John was writing to should have been encouraged by this glorious news. Because think about this. John's, John's, John's wanting to encourage them and tell them of this one who has all sovereign rule and authority because these were suffering saints in the first century and, and and suffering saints by the way you read church history every century of church history has suffering saints christianity is the most persecuted minority group in the world and still is today it's just we in the west our western culture the church is going to sleep and so god's starting to wake us up with persecution that's coming our way. But we need to understand, friends, we need to be encouraged by the one who does reign supreme over all of his creation. So that is the throne. Now, who is on this throne? Because it doesn't matter whoever this is, if he has sovereign rule and authority, it doesn't matter unless it's the right person. So who is on this throne? Well, verses 2 and 3 are helpful here in some way. It's interesting, the Apostle John doesn't actually name this person, this one who is sitting on the throne. But when you compare Scripture with Scripture and follow the thread and the theme all the way through Scripture, you, you can find cross-references to find out who is this one. See, the Apostle John's readers, they would have known who this one is because they've read their Old Testament. So let me just show you a few other passages here. For example, the prophet Daniel saw who was sitting on the throne. Look what Daniel 7 verse says. It's on the screen. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Sound like Revelation 1? It should. It also sounds like Ezekiel chapter 1, too, doesn't it? Ezekiel 1. Do you see the thread over and over again through Scripture? Look at this. Ezekiel 1.26 is on the screen. Above the expanse over their heads... That's those four living creatures. Over their heads were the, were the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, 
I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of who? The glory of Yahweh. Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. The one on the throne, there is Yahweh. That's his name. So who's sitting on the throne in Revelation 4? (laughs) Well, that's the question of the day, isn't it? Well, based on the context, because in Revelation chapter 5, we have the Son of God approaching the throne. And in Revelation 4, verse 5, we have the Holy Spirit pictured there before the throne. Well, that only leaves one person of the Trinity left. That means this, this person here must be, the God, must be God the Father. Must be God the Father. Now, I really like what verse 2 says. It, it shows us there that the universe is not something that's governed by a mindless force. The universe is governed by God Almighty. So instead, what we have here is we have the sovereign, omnipotent creator of the universe sitting on his throne as the ruler over all of his creation. And I love that word sitting there because when you see that there, that means he's taking the posture of a ruling monarch. As the king of kings and lord of lords, he's taking up his rightful position as a ruling authority. Now, what is God like? Well, He's indescribable, and that's why these these poor prophets and apostles, they always have to use the word like. Did you notice that? Daniel does it. The prophet Ezekiel does it. The apostle John does it. And whenever they use the word like, that's figurative language because God, God is indescribable, and so they have to use poor human language to describe something that you can't. And so they have to use the word like, showing you it's figurative. And so John's only using comparisons. In verse 3, God is compared to a stone called jasper, which is just a clear gem. So I've given you a picture on the screen here of a diamond. That's the best description you, you can see of the text here to identify this particular stone. Now why, why a diamond? Some people don't like diamonds because they don't have they don't really have a color. Well, that's the beauty of a diamond, actually, because the diamond shows off everything that's around it and coming through it. And what what you have here, friends, in verse three is God's glory is looking like this diamond that is reflecting all the colors of the spectrum because there is not one color that that could perfectly show forth God's majesty and glory. He is multicolored. The other stone mentioned there is carnelian, or uh, another name for carnelian. Maybe your Bible might even say sardis, coming from that region. Remember we talked about chapter 3, the church of sardis? 
Well, there was a stone that came from Sardis, <laughs> and it's the color on the screen. Car- carnelian is a fiery, blood-red ruby, and I think the idea here is, because God loves his colors, right? He created them. He's, he's just expressing the shining beauty of his own glory. Maybe it's symbolizing, uh, based on the context here, about God's wrath that's about to be poured out on the earth. Read chapter 6 all the way to 19. God's judgment is coming. And so that color is very descriptive of, maybe of God's wrath about to be poured out on the earth. Another question to consider, number three, is what is around the throne? What is around the throne? Again, verse 3 tells us, answers this question, the end of verse 3. Notice there's a, that around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I hope you've seen a rainbow. This is going to be way better than anyone you've ever seen. Uh, I, a lot of people think this rainbow, for one thing, this rainbow is actually a complete circle, unlike the ones uh, that we see. They're just merely an arc. See, in heaven, friends, everything's complete. There's no partial stuff in heaven. And so a rainbow, what does it remind you of? Hopefully it reminds you of Genesis chapter 9, I hope. You remember in Genesis 9, that rainbow was put in the sky to remind us of God's covenant with Noah, that God would never, ever again destroy this earth with a universal flood. He is going to destroy the earth again but it's not with water. And so according to Genesis 9, the rainbow is symbolizing God's covenant, faithfulness, and mercy, and grace. Every time you see those colors in the ark of the sky, look at it and think God. What do I need to think about God? You need to think of a faithful God. Because remember, friends, Whenever you see God's judgment fall, look for His grace. Look for His grace. That rainbow needs to remind you of His grace. What a blessing that is, because rainbows provide a comforting balance here to the fiery judgment that is coming out from God's throne. And since judgment, by the way, is about to fall in chapter 6, starting in chapter 6, The rainbow here is reminding us that God is also one who is merciful and gracious. Even when He does judge, He still those things. Number four, what is around the throne? What is around the throne? Well, verse four helps us here as well as some other verses. Because verse four tells us this. That around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. What's that all about? Well, first of all, you can see here that that around the throne you have elders. Who are those 24 elders seated on the thrones? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Because if you read five commentaries, you'll probably get ten opinions. That that was a joke. But but the idea here, friends, is one, one of the ideas or theories here is that these are angels. Well, think about this, friends. Do you ever see in Bible angels being numbered or crowned or enthroned with authority? No, never, never do you see angels numbered, crowned, or enthroned. So that's take that theory off the list, right? 
And, and the other thing that's helpful here is the Greek word for crown is the Greek word stephanos. Stephan- there's different words for English word crown. But that Greek word stephanos refers to the victor's crown. Uh, the, the victor's crown was, was something given to someone who would have won the Olympic Games, for example. If you won whatever your event was in the Olympics, you would have received the stephanos, the victor's crown. So we have no evidence whatsoever that angels receive rewards, uh, nor do we ever see angels sitting on thrones, but these elders are doing that. And they have crowns, the Stephanos crown. So, with that in mind, these elders probably are symbolizing the people of God in heaven. Notice I said symbolizing, because it's not complete. Uh, these, These... These people of God are enthroned, they are rewarded, and they have some authority. So the question is, which humans then do they represent? If they're representing humans, which I firmly believe they are, which kind of humans? Well, it's helpful to note that numbers are significant to God. And the number 24 is used in Scripture to speak of completion. It's, it's, it also shows you representation. For example, if you know your Bible, you should immediately be thinking back to 1 Chronicles chapter 24. And in 1 Chronicles 24, you have an example there where there were 24 officers of the sanctuary that represented 24 courses of priests that were mentioned in the Old Testament temple. So, with that in mind, you understand the number 24 is representing a bigger group of people representative of a bigger group of people. So whoever these 24 elders are, they're likely representing this larger group of human beings. Is that clear so far? And the other thing to bear in mind here is the text tells us in verse 4 that these elders are wearing white robes. That's a theme you see over and over again throughout the book of Revelation. White robes speak of victory. Uh, so what, what we have here is you put all these little strings together and tie them in a knot. You have a very powerful rope, and what you have is elders representing all the overcomers that have been mentioned in chapters 2 and 3, and, and the overcomers are, are, are the ones who have conquered because of faith in Christ. You overcome by faith in Christ. So I think... It's referring to the, these are representatives of the church, if you ask me. Uh, That's my personal opinion. Certainly, these are representing the overcomers who have overcome because of their faith in Christ. They're there, around the throne, worshiping God. But they're not the only ones there. Notice verses 6 and 7, there's four living creatures that are mentioned in other places of Scripture. So around the throne... Notice John saw these four living creatures, and notice they're very near to God. Uh, They're very near, even closer than the elders, and so they're resembling the the cherubim angels that the prophet Ezekiel mentioned, and what he saw in Ezekiel chapter 1. By the way, these pathetic artworks will never do the throne throne in heaven justice, but I I hope you get the idea. Uh, What are they doing? What are they doing according to verse 8? They're praising. They're praising God. And it reminds us of the seraphim 
that do the same thing in Isaiah chapter 6. What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy to God. And so I believe these are very special creatures symbolizing God's creation. They're, they're related to God's covenant to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Now this, this might be a little complicated here, so just stick with me, okay? So you have the, uh, notice there's different faces mentioned here. The, the faces of living creatures are paralleling the kind of the statements mentioned in Genesis 9. Uh, you have God's covenant uh, with Noah, and so you have this, you, one of the faces is the face of a man. Uh, you have, a, you have a, a, a bird, which is the face of an eagle. You have cattle uh, mentioned there, and uh, even the beast of the earth, represented by the face of a lion. And so those creatures are signifying, at least they're signifying something about the character of God. Everything there is showing you something about God. Uh, notice you have uh, the wisdom of God mentioned in places like Ezekiel 1, as well as here, with all the eyes, everything's full of eyes, looking everywhere. They're proclaiming the holiness of God. And so these are heavenly reminders that God has a covenant with His creation. And He is the one who rules His creation from this position in heaven. And so the presence of the emerald rainbow is further enhancing that image, by the way, since the rainbow was given as a sign of the creation covenant. And so no matter what terrible judgments are about to fall, starting in chapter 6, we have a God who is faithful to keep His word. And so mankind, uh, they, they love to curse God, and they're going to. Read Revelation chapter 16 as just one example. Over and over again, in Revelation 16, they're cursing God. They don't like what He's doing, and so they're... Nature is going to praise God nevertheless and magnify His holiness, even if rebellious people don't. Now, one of the other interesting things about this, this text here is that some scholars see in those four faces there an illustration of the fourfold uh, ministry, shall we say, of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you have the Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So stick with me here. What do you... What is Matthew teaching you about Jesus? That Matthew is the, or sorry, that, that Jesus is the king. He's the king. And so you have the royal gospel of the king illustrated in the king of the beast, the lion. By the way, what's Jesus called? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Then you have Mark. He's emphasizing that Jesus is a servant. And that's illustrated there in the calf. Uh, Luke presents Jesus Christ as the as the Son of Man. He is a human being. And then the Apostle John magnifies the deity of Christ, showing that Jesus really is God. He has two natures in one person forever. And that's illustrated in the glorious picture of the eagle. So, again, I, I, I can't uh, say dogmatically that's the case, but it is an interesting uh, if it is a coincidence, it's a very interesting one. But what do we see coming out of the throne in verse 5? In verse 5, you have these storm signals, right? Some of you can you, you, you can figure this out on these days. You, you look out 
at the sky and you see these things. And so that's exactly what's happening here. Storm signals here indicating a, a coming storm. The reminders of God's awesome power and lightning and thunder and all that sort of stuff happening up there in the sky. And so the storm signals, by the way, they're, you're going to see those things repeated in chapter 6 through 19 uh, it, it, during all that time of judgment. And they're also proceeding from the very throne. Where are they coming from? They're coming from the temple of God, and from the throne of God. So God has prepared His throne here for the judgments to come. He's ready. Now, our world, and even some churches, don't like to hear this message, do they? They don't want to talk about God's judgment. They don't want to talk about a God of wrath. Uh, they don't like that. They, they prefer to look at the rainbow around the throne. Ooh, that's beautiful. Right? And let's talk about a little baby Jesus in the manger, but let's not talk about this kind of a Jesus, this big, you know, frightening, awesome, powerful Jesus. And they want to ignore all the lightning and the thunder that's coming from the throne. My friends, yes, certainly God is a God of love and grace, but may I remind you, His grace reigns through His holiness in particular and His righteousness. And so this was made clear, particularly at the cross of Jesus Christ, where God manifested both His love for sinners as well as His wrath against the sin. You can see it in Jesus. They meet together in Jesus at the cross. And number six, we also see here what is before the throne. What's before the throne? Look at verses five and six. The first thing, just take note, God mentions there is lamps. Lamps. Now these these lamps are... Uh, not really. Any, don't don't think of your pathetic little lamp in your lounge or sitting on your desk at home, or at work. No, not not that kind of a lamp. Uh, first of all, notice the number seven comes up again. Seven lamps. Is, the number seven always represents completeness. In this case, it's symbolizing the Holy Spirit of God. Based on chapter one, verse four. I will remind you, uh, we read this a long time ago. Revelation 1, verse 4 mentions that uh, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So we have the Holy Spirit of God represented here in, in full completeness. And please note that these are fiery torches of fierce, blazing light. These, these are not your gentle little lights that you flick on to read a book. Oh, no, no. See, in the Bible, friends, torches are often associated with war. And so God is showing the Apostle John here, I am ready to make war on these rebellious people, and, and the Holy Spirit's at the forefront here. He is, he is the war torch. There's another thing mentioned here. God mentions a sea. Now that's interesting, the sea is mentioned. Because the sea, if you read on in the book of Revelation... Uh, it, it, it says quite clearly that there is no sea in heaven. I believe it's chapter 21. No sea in heaven. So what's going on there? Well, then that means this has to be symbolic. And since the Bible tells us there's no sea in heaven, what, what's all this about? Well, Notice it's described as something that's pure. It's, it, it's crystal. It's kind of see-through. So you have a pure crystal sea symbolizing What's the very central foundational attribute of God? Well, what are they saying in heaven? That He is holy 
holy, holy. Very central foundational attribute of God is He is holy. So it's symbolizing God's holiness, the very foundation of His throne. And notice again, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22 here on the screen. It says, Over the heads of these living creatures was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in the appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. So there you go. Saying the same sort of thing. So my friends, this is beautiful, because heaven, please don't think of heaven as some shadowy world of fog and mist, and you have a bunch of ghosts without bodies running around. You don't have little babies with wings sitting on clouds playing harps. Right? That is not heaven. (laughs) Nowhere do you see that described. God never describes it that way. What you do have, though, is a a real place of dazzling light. It's being refracted and it's shining through all these glorious jewels and, and this crystal that God's mentioning here. So basically, you have something that is beyond human description. So, why is the Apostle John even trying? (laughs) Well, it's because the Holy Spirit's directing this, first of all. So let's listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying. And certainly we can get something from this. But if you get nothing else from this, at least get question number seven. What's being done to the throne? What's being done to the throne? That's verses 9 through 11. So, here you have this scene in heaven. It's concluding in... Worship And notice where the worship is being directed to. It's being directed to a person. And this person is God. And there, right by God, you have four living creatures. And they're beginning their worship by focusing on the central attribute of God being His holiness. God's central attribute is not love. That is a part of God. That's not a central attribute. Think, think, of a, think of a wheel with right in the middle of the hub. If you think of holiness and then all the spokes coming out from that, one of them would be love. And so they're worshiping and praising God. Why? They're ascribing glory and worth to God. Why? Because He's worthy of it. But just notice what the text says. Why is He worthy of worship? Why is He worthy of your worship? By the way, if you're a Christian, you're on your way to the celestial city. Your citizenship is in heaven. And may I suggest you start practicing now. (laughs) Because you're going to spend eternity doing this. But notice why they're worshiping God. Number one, we see here that God's holiness is cause for praise in verse 8. Verse 8 says these four living creatures are there. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and Day and night. In other words, they keep doing this. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So notice, holiness here is the only attribute of God you will ever find in the Bible repeated three times. God loves that number three. He loves it. Why is He doing this? Because it's the summary of all that God is. How do you summarize 
the indescribable. Well, God uses the word holy or holiness. So what's holiness? Well, it's God's complete separation from all of His creation, particularly everything that is evil. So don't just think of God as sinless or perfect. He is, but He's far more than that. So He's one who is absolutely untouched by any evil, any error or wrongdoing. And by the way, that is one of the things that makes God unique. He is unique. So when you say God's holy, you're saying God is unique, He's distinct, and He is separate. That's who He is. There's no one else like Him, and that's why you can't try to form something like God and worship it, because it will never be God. And so God's holiness here is cause for praise. But number two... God's power is also cause for praise, according to verse 8, because notice the Holy Spirit describes God as almighty. That's a term identifying God as the one who is the strongest, the most powerful being in the universe. Nothing compares to Him. Uh, So, if, if you want to try to get at God's weaknesses and defeat Him through His weaknesses, Good luck with that, because Satan's been doing it for thousands of years without being successful. Because God has no weaknesses. (laughs) He has none whatsoever. Nobody can oppose his power, and so because of this truth here, God is almighty. And he can do whatever his will purposes to do. And and because of that, he's worthy of praise. And number three, we also see in verse 8 that God's eternality is also cause for praise. Notice the text says, He was and is and is to come. Notice the tense. Notice the tense in those verbs. Here's why you need to know grammar, friends. If you missed that in school, I've got a book for you. It's in a box at the moment, but it might come out and show itself one day. But notice the tense in the verbs. What do you have? Is. Present. Was, past tense, to come, future tense. Well, that covers everything then, doesn't it? Past tense, present tense, future tense. (laughs) And then verse 9 tells us this one who was and is and is to come. Notice verse 9. Oh, by the way, he lives forever and ever, in case you didn't understand verse 8. And so being eternal is, is another one of those things that sets God apart from His creation. Now, this probably doesn't come as a revelation to any of you, but you have a birthday. Just think about that. You have a birthday. What does that mean? It means you have a beginning. Right? Now, you get to live forever. Well, for the rest of eternity. But you had a beginning. And everything else in creation had a beginning except for God. He never had one. He will always be. So that's why he describes himself as, I am. And so to know that God is eternal, then, should provide comfort for all of his children. See, since, um, unlike my human father and your human father, he will always be there to take care of you. Always. God's eternity guarantees that you will have eternal life. Because if God's not eternal, you have no guarantee whatsoever of eternal life in heaven. 
But the good news is, God is eternal, therefore you can have eternal life. Now notice verse 10, because did you notice in verse 10, that what happens when the living creatures glorify God? The answer is, the rest of creation, well not all of it, but you have others joining in the worship. In this case, you have elders joining in the worship. And what are they doing? They're not high-fiving, uh, you know, and you know that kind of stuff that we typically do here on earth. They're falling before the throne and praising God. They're, in fact, they're falling down. That is usually the posture that you see human beings taking as they worship the God who is. It's the natural response to the awe-inspiring glory of God. There's a lot more that could be said on that. Uh, but notice that God's eternality is just one of the causes of praise here. And then in verse 11, we also see, last of all, that God's worthiness is cause for praise. See, worship is ascribing worth. Is God worthy of this worship? Absolutely, because notice what verse 11 says. God says, I am worthy, I am Lord, I am God, to receive glory and honor and power. And so they're saying this here at the throne of God. Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here we get, you hear yet again, another group just adding their praise to God. Here we have the elders worshiping God, these representatives of humanity. And so if the 24 elders typify the people of God in heaven, which I think they do, then we should ask this question, friends. Why should God's people praise God as creator? Because that's what it says. Verse 11, well, Psalm 19 says that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The, the, the firmament, the skies above, show His handiwork, right? So if the heavens are declaring the glory of God, then why shouldn't God's heavenly people then join in this chorus? I mean, creation, the Bible says, is constantly bearing witness to God's own character, as Psalm 19 says. What, what do you learn about God as you, as you look at the creation? What do you learn? Well, you, you, you see a God of power and wisdom and glory, just to name a few. But here's the problem, according to Romans 1. Good old Romans 1. Seems like it has the answer for everything. We have sinful man, in Romans 1, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Why? That's dumb. <laughs> That is dumb. Worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And Romans 1 calls that idolatry, rightfully so. You see the problem? We turn something good, like God's creation, into an ultimate thing, and then we bow down and worship. You say, I would never do that. Really? Anything? You've never done that? Like Anything that God has, sorry, that mankind has made, have you ever turned that good thing into an ultimate thing to find your identity in that? The short answer is, you've all done that. If you don't want to admit it, we've all done it. We have. We, we, we try to find our identity in other things other than God. And that's idolatry. And so, sinful man, the Bible says, has polluted and destroyed God's wonderful creation. <laughs> Just read Genesis 3. 
And uh, as you will see in Revelation to come, they're going to pay for that idolatry. Judgment will come. And so creation is there to praise God. It is for His pleasure. And mankind has no right then to go and usurp God's authority and just go and do whatever they want with His creation because it belongs to God. But the good news is God made you to be a steward of His glorious creation. But man has plunged creation into sin, according to Genesis 3. So now you have a problem. Because what did God say about His creation in Genesis 2? He said it was good. It was all good. Except for man being alone. But He fixed that problem too. So it was good originally. And then now we have... Genesis 3, where it's now all been corrupted, and so now, according to Romans 8, we have all of creation groaning and looking for its day of redemption. And the good news is, because of Christ's work, one day, even creation itself is going to be delivered, and even creation is going to be made new. Read the last part of the Bible. Read about the new heavens and the new earth. It's glorious. Or read Romans 8. It's very unfortunate that the church today often neglects the worship of God. Uh, Maybe we don't think enough about His creation and why He's worthy of worship as Creator. And uh, so what do we do today? We, uh, we, We worship creation instead of the Creator, just just in general. And so one of the things we do today is we we turn good things like creation into ultimate things. And so now we've got a mess, uh, you know, you know, all this talk about the world and uh, global warming and environmentalism and climate change and all this stuff. You know, some of that is good, but the problem is you turn it into an ultimate thing, it becomes God, a false god. The real answer to all of the environmental issues of our day or the ecological problems is it's not a financial thing it's not a legal issue it's not it's not uh you know don't look to the un to solve it it's a spiritual thing and so you got to look to god and it's only as mankind acknowledges the creator and worships him and and we begin to be stewards of god's creation for god's glory that all of those problems are going to be solved the problem is we look to ourselves and all our pathetic ways of solving the problem. And it's interesting, worship's important. And, and, and according to the book of Ecclesiastes, God said He has set eternity in our hearts. So should it surprise us that people want to go and worship something? They, they have to find identity in something. And it's sad that so many look in the wrong places. And so I, I, I looked to Dr. Google. Not, not for my identity, but to find some answers. Dr. Google's helpful sometimes. And it's interesting, all this fascination with the afterlife, Google can answer those questions. <laughs> uh, just, just look at the, the top books and the, uh, what's on the bestseller list and look at the TV programs and the movies that are being produced today. They'll tell you something about the culture. Very eye-opening, because we have books on supposed afterlife and near-death experiences, and, uh, you know, angels is something, another one that people are interested in. It, a lot of the top bestsellers, like the New York Times bestsellers and that sort of stuff, Amazon, 
Uh, you'll you'll find a, a lot about the afterlife or angels and that sort of thing or people's near near death experiences. T- TV programs ex- explore the mysterious realm of the supernatural, right? I mean, we got stuff about demons and angels and Satan and Lucifer and right. You, you know, you got werewolves and vampires and you know all sorts of stuff like that these days, don't we? The mo- movies got people they're just seem to be coming and going through afterlife and interacting with spiritual beings like angels. That's very interesting, isn't it? And some people claim to have visited heaven even. There's a lot of books like that. Uh, There's even some who've claimed to go to hell and come back. And they return to tell their experiences. But friends, in, in contrast to all of those fanciful stories, the Bible actually records a real account of the Apostle John, a real person, who went to a real place called heaven. And he was taken there by a real being called God. And that's a wonderful privilege when you think about it. Because through the Apostle John, in the writings of the Holy Spirit, we, 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 we can see this. Through John's vision here, Christians have the privilege of previewing the place that they're going to live forever. Do you ever buy a house without going and looking at it? Please don't answer that. Don't ruin my illustration, because I know there's people that do that, right? It happens all the time. You ever been to one of those auctions? It happened to me. You go to those auctions and someone overseas, you know, they're on the phone and someone's bidding for them, right, representing them. I don't know why they would do that. Um, that, that seems rather foolish to me. But see, you don't, you don't have to look at trade me or, you know, be overseas and, and uh, you know, I, I'd like room, you know, 10,029, you know, on, on the, uh, the 129th floor of the New Jerusalem. Thank you very much. But you don't have to do that. You're getting a vision from the Holy Spirit Himself who's there. He knows. And that's a wonderful privilege. The question is, friends, are you ready? Are you ready? Where's your heart? Is your your heart in heaven? Is it there yet? should be. Set your affections on things above, not on the earth. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this little glimpse into your glory right there at the throne in heaven. May we understand what has been talked about here and how that relates to us. May we not look to all the fanciful stories that are out there, the books, the movies, so forth, but may we look to your word to find out what is reality protect us from all the deception and the lies and the deceit and as the uh, the angel of light would just love us to be distracted from the reality that you have described for us here may our affections be set on things above not on the earth in jesus name we pray amen